If you hear the gentle whoosh and rattle of what might be a ghost, fear not, it is only the wind. But perhaps the ghosts are here with us anyway, like the ghost of Temujin and the Genghis Khan that he became. Creator Roshan Singh certainly has thought about them both, and you can hear him talk about that man and his family saga right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hello, and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez-Collins. Be aware that this interview contains detailed discussions about racism, colonization, and their effects on history, literature, language, and people. Please take care of yourself. Hiroshin Singh started as an aficionado of Shakespeare, diving deep into Hamlet in particular. And it wasn't until a certain series of events at his college that he became aware of the existence of the secret history of the Mongols, an ancient epic saga about the life of Genghis Khan. And it wasn't until a certain series of events at his college that he became aware of the existence of the secret history of the Mongols, an ancient epic saga about the life of Genghis Khan. It captivated him, it inspired him, and now we have Temujin as a result. Roshan dives deep with me into the background of Temujin's production, from the very first twinklings of an idea to its production and eventual release. It's a fascinating look into the birth of a podcast totally run by college students. He talks about his travels to Mongolia with his best friend, about recording audio at the Mongolian steppes. We are both avid lovers of the history of storytelling and epics, their place in our society, and how they have influenced our media and our attitudes towards hero worship. Most importantly, Roshan and I talk about colonization. Colonialism has a long-reaching arm with many fingers, ghostly to the unaffected, but needle-like to others. Language and history are always controlled by those in power. Temujin wrestles with taking it back. Before we continue, I'd like to direct your attention to the protests occurring in Inner Mongolia, an autonomous region of China. Parents have pulled their children out of schools because of a new curriculum instituted by the regional government there. The Mongolian language is being supplanted by Mandarin as the language of instruction, and regional textbooks are being replaced with Mandarin textbooks from the national curriculum. If this sounds familiar, it's because it's Han supremacy, or Sinocentrism, the idea that Han culture is the authentic character of the Chinese nation. This is, of course, bullshit. You can see Sinocentrism in every repressive action the Chinese government has taken to tamp down autonomous ethnic groups, from repression in Tibet in previous decades, the police state clampdown in Hong Kong, and the Uyghur genocide in Xinjiang. We condemn the erasure of culture in Inner Mongolia, and we urge you to pay attention to the protest movements there, as well as the protest movements where you live, too. Recognize them for what they are. Please, for the conservation of culture, language, history, and life against those who would eradicate them. Temujin is the result of your capstone at uh, the Yale NUS college, um, for which you won an award, and uh, also the result, of course, of the team of 30 people who helped you bring it to life. What? That's correct. What yes. was that process like? I'm especially interested in the mm. response of your professors or department in the mm. decision to go audio only. Mm. So... I mean, thank you for raising the team, um, because I would say that um, Temujin, the audio product, was very much the work of 30 people. I think Temujin, the script, um, which was nebulously, um, I think, either for stage or for audio, um, was the result of mostly solo two-year work. Um, I would say that the response of uh, my professors was, um, by and large, incredibly supportive. Um, part of that is due to the nature of Yale and U.S. College, I think, um, especially back when I was there um, two years ago, the college had been operational for um, a very, very, very short amount of time. So for context, I was within the second batch of students ever. Oh, school. wow. Um, so there was kind of an experimental vibe to just about everything. Um, there was a sense that if you could float and justify something through sort of a scheme of action, um, the school would, would back you on it, 100%. Um, Temujin was... I think fell very neatly within that that norm of the school of there being no normal. Um, 
So kind of why not was kind of the response I got. Honestly, love to hear it. <laughs> yeah, I'm very grateful. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, that, that, that's that part of the process. I know you're just talking about professors, but I'd love to answer anything more specific. Can you go into like a little bit more detail about the process that you undertook mm. and, and your team, of course, undertook to okay. make this come to life. I know that it started as um, a, like a staged reading, kind of, um, or staged performance, mm-hmm. like a very simple one. Um, mm-hmm. So what was that like? Mm. What was involved? I guess? That's right. Okay, let me try to go through the entire history of the process. Um, um, all right, so I'd say that the, I think the moment of inception for Temujin was um, a couple of things happening at once. Um, so the personal narrative is for most of my life, I was a science student. Um, and in Singapore, there's a very big deal that's made about, um, you know, are you a, you know, are you science or are you arts? Um, you get streamed very, very early. Um, and you start making big calls basically from the age of 12 onwards. Um, so I, I was very much science streamed the whole way, uh, not necessarily by choice. <laughs> um, I think the idea was that it was safer. And I think that might be one of those things that is more or less global. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah. So what happened was I, I went to this liberal arts school. Um, I, I really fought to enter the liberal arts school, um, to do neuroscience. <laughs> I thought this is the future. This is my life. The rest of my life will be neuroscience. <laughs> um, and all it took was, within, I think, freshman year, I, I did one 24-hour play event. Um, I just fell into it, of you write a script overnight, um, about eight hours. You, you essentially fall asleep for the remainder of the process. Um, and you wake up at about 7 p.m. to see the play actually come to life. Um, and I think that was a moment something clicked in me on a profound level where I was like, oh, you know, I suppose I'm not a science student, am I? Ah! The amount of satisfaction that this is giving me. Um, like, the, the specific thing was like, oh my god, I spent 12 hours working on that. Um, and, and I felt like I could have done more. And I'm like, that five hours I spent uh, running uh, cog science um, experiments drained me. And I just thought, if I could spend the rest of my life working this hard and feeling this good, that would not be the worst thing. So Temujin came at a point sort of where I had had that realization. But yeah, um, so what happened after that was um, I heard someone say um, from the class, uh, from that class of this person, um, on the topic of like what, what historical material there is to mine, or was to mine, um, this idea that, that Shakespeare got there first and he, he covered so much of that. Um, and that sort of what, what's happened is that over the course of the canon, a lot of the biggest history, if we're talking about condensing big history, um, has been taken, and that really, really, really did not sit well with me. Um, yeah, I read that and, in some of your interviews, yeah. and I, <laughs> yes. I nearly yeah. like I did. I just lost it. I was literally like screaming, uh, <laughs> like <laughs> at the computer. Thank you. Uh, oh, thank you. My, when I was in when I was in my bachelor's <laughs> year, I'm a linguistics <laughs> student. In my yeah, bachelor's, yeah. my bachelor's thesis was on. Taghribat Bani Hilal, which is this major mm. Arabic oral epic from Bedouin twi- tribes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it, it doesn't, yeah. basically no one knows about it in the West because why would you care yeah. about anything not written by dead white people? <laughs> yes, so, yes, yeah, very much so, yes. Um, <laughs> exactly, exactly, thank you. So that visceral feeling, right? Um, I think I think what what really made me feel rather sad was not so much the part of me that the the large part of me that disagreed with it, so much as I recognized that there was a tiny part of myself that understood that on some level I had bought into that, mm-hmm. and I had so kind of like I I get where that guy was coming from and I hated that, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and again I think um, personally I'm very well I wouldn't say I'm interested in neocolonialism so much as I feel like I cannot escape that. Wow, um, that's a mood. <laughs> Yeah. yeah yeah i mean and speaking as somebody who like speaking to somebody who grew up in an island and felt a pull to america mm-hmm. um by way of of wanting to uh, participate mm-hmm. in in sort of the forces that shaped us mm-hmm. you know like what do we do with that what and i guess that that feeling um not a great feeling yeah it's not a great feeling 
it's not a great feeling. Um, so what happened was that, and I know that you know this part of the story too. Um, I, I'll tell it anyway. But um, uh, so my very best friend, who, who unfortunately could not be here tonight, but um, I know that he'll be listening to this. So hello, Umberbold, <laughs> I love you. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, he. <laughs> uh, so we were actually both in Yale together when, when this was happening. He was studying, I think, Vikings and one other course that I can't remember. Uh, but he, he's a um, Mongolian-born, um, obsessive historian, um, all-around just cool guy. Um, we, we bonded in college basically over realizing that we were both the same amount of nerd, um, to, similar, to the similar degrees in the same directions. Like, like um, ah, yes, you, you shamefully watched a lot of anime, and I mean a lot of anime. That's great, so did I. You watch Let's Plays on YouTube, we follow the same Let's Players. Um, <laughs> you know, just... And then, like, and then the fact that he's, like, from Mongolia, like, a, basically a farm boy. Like, I remember one of our first, like, interactions out. We took a mall, we took a bus to a nearby mall. Um, he looks out of the bus and he goes, isn't it kind of weird how there are no camels around? And I'm like, dude, <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. Um, and <laughs> uh, so it, it was this beautiful, just constant back and forth of just feeling like we had known each other for our entire lives and just like, dang, we have so much to learn from each other. That's extremely um, good. And that it, yeah, yeah, it's really, really good. Um, it was really, it is, and like, I imagine that the learning journey with that man is going to be a lifelong thing. So like, I, <laughs> I'm still in it. Um, but yeah, so what happened was that I fed him this statement um, that this this sense or inclination uh, towards believing that um, that we have almost exhausted uh, global epic history, um, and he sort of. <laughs> Um, I've mythologized this moment. And when you mythologize a moment, it's a bit of a dangerous thing because what happens is you risk sort of losing the spontaneity that makes it fun. (laughs) (laughs) So the visceral moment that I remember is him bolting upright, exhaling, and, um, and he, uh, without even, there was no preamble to it. Like he just started talking about, um, Chinggis Khan, Chinggis Khan. Um, and he's like, he didn't even like really think to say that's wrong. He just started telling me about Mongolian history yeah. <laughs> and, and, and kept off with the sentence that I'll, I'll never forget is um, the historical Chinggis Khan um, is more dramatically compelling than, ha- than Shakespeare's Hamlet ever was. Um, and this, this was just like fresh after um, it's like fresh towards the end of the Hamlet process. So I think, like, coming towards sort of this idea of, like, a, rather, it hit at this point where we had spent two years believing that the culmination of all of our dramatic efforts was this whole Hamlet um, enterprise. Um, and, you know, we just started thinking about that. Like, what, what, is, what is a story more interesting than the thing we spent two years working on even look like? Um, it's just, at least for me, enter, I entered reading Mongolian history with a lot of baggage. Um, and I think... If you'd said Mongolian history um, to anyone, uh, you know, that baggage is, is universal. You look at, um, I know, I heard that deep sigh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Where yeah. I just went. Like, you look at. Yep. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Um, so what was visceral to me was that um, at the same time that I was reading about Genghis Khan, um, I'd, I'd happened to catch um, uh, the Book of Mormon on Broadway. Mm. And... And you know, like that's a that's a fun show in in many ways. Like it's it's it's. Um, I was laughing through most of it, and there's this bit um, where. Do you know the bit I'm going to refer to? I think I do. Um, Let's describe I, it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what happens is uh, you have um, let's see three characters in hell. I think it's you. You have the devil, I think, um, and then you have Hitler by his side. And then Chinggis Khan on his other side. Yep. And uh, Hitler and Chinggis Khan are both bragging about um, how many innocent people they kill. Um, and I think I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, I guess that is all, <laughs> that is all we really hear about the guys. And like, I grew up watching The Simpsons. Um, there's that, there's that um, hello, Lisa. Um, I'm Chinggis Khan. Uh, you are experiencing a VR simulation of me murdering all these people and maybe eating a couple. Hmm. 
Um, <laughs> and like, and I remember that very viscerally. And I'm just kind of like, and you know, you look at Mulan, which Amarbol is my best friend. He said he grew up loving, but when he gained any kind of faculty of reasoning, he said watching that film made him really uncomfortable uh, seeing sort of his history and culture uh, so sort of easily demonized. It's this really common thing of like, if you need default bad guys, long before the Russians, I think we had Mongolians. You're uh, as not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that's, that's interesting. Um, I think I started thinking then about which, which stories and perspectives are allowed to be heard and, and which aren't. I think what came to mind when I watched that scene immediately was, how, what about Alexander the Great? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know? Like, why, why are we allowed to unproblematically affix uh, the Great to his name, knowing all that he did, while going, but that guy made so many cultural advancements. Like Genghis Khan yeah, did, no, exactly. right? right? Like, uh... I know. <laughs> um, you have historians saying that um, like one, of the, one of the common isms is that um, the safest, one of the safest places for women to travel openly throughout all of world history up till very recently was the Silk Roads in the 12th to 14th century, I believe is the same. Like, uh, there were, and one, in fact, one of the first two golden laws that Chinggis Khan passed um, there were two of them. The first was um, essentially religious freedom uh, for anybody living under Mongol rule. Um, and the second was uh, a hard um, a hard law against using women for bartering or trading um, or sort of kidnapped brides, outlawing that practice, um, which is interesting. And there's also, sorry, this is another bit of attention, but I found this so interesting. Thomas Jefferson uh, was a Mongol history fanboy. Um, we know that he, there in, in letters he talks about reading about Zingis Khan and his religious freedom thing. Um, and there is actually um, a fairly, like, a fairly direct um, line of evidence that the results of Chinggis Khan's religious freedom experiment influenced um, the founding fathers' sort of early developments and thinking through the constitution. Um, but, you know, that that's not the side that I think... So then... Uh, Basically, this is zooming out a little bit. Um, so what's happening at this point of the story is I'm basically thinking through, um, really, I'm reading through the thing. I'm going, dang, this is a good story. This is, I'm really enjoying this story. And then I watched the Book of Mormon and I'm like, am I a bad person for enjoying this story? Oh, <laughs> am I, yes, Am I falling moment. in love with, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, am I, uh, what am I doing basically? And And there were all these conflicting feelings and, the ethics of it, the representation, and I guess what, what I kept coming back to in that otherwise confusing period was, oh, but, oh, but I'm really hooked. Oh, but I can't stop reading. Oh, this is very tender and surprising to me. I felt like I had never been allowed to think of Mongolian history as, as being like this, as, as being capable of having moments like this, much less to have these moments be central um, to this narrative, right? To, to have it be driven um, in many ways by the intimate moments. Um, and then when you read into the, the history of the secret history, right? Which is to say like the how and why this document is written. I told you I'll talk more about the secret history of the Mongols later. I, this, is, this is later. Um, so the way it was written contemporary uh, to Genghis Khan's life, the secret history of the Mongols. Um, it was written around, I think, the 13th century, near his death. Um, and it was also written in code, um, meant to be sort of um, kept within the family. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and what's super interesting about it is that it, it isn't a celebration of Genghis Khan the way you would think it might be. Because certainly you could argue that Genghis Khan died at a high point, for certainly for the Mongol Empire. Um, they had nearly taken over all of Europe and essentially pulled back only because their leader had fallen quite seriously ill. Like, his health was not good. So, like, hey, let's stop this whole Europe thing and head back for a second. There's this quote that if they hadn't, if their armies hadn't pulled back um, near the end of Genghis Khan's life, uh, we would all be speaking Mongolian um, today. And that's something to think about. But, like, that, it was kind of a high point for him, for the, for the empire, you would think. Um, so, so why then did he prob- probably commission and actively aid in the writing of the document Secret History of the Mongols, which 
so spuriously kind of rebukes him. <laughs> you know, like the secret the secret history of the Mongols is in many ways, um, I think, a collection of of, of his failures, <laughs> really as much as his successes. In fact, the the successes, which is you know, you look at the war stuff. My goodness, um, uh, are, are are there kind of just they're acknowledged, but but where it really goes in detail, and I come back to that monologue I was describing earlier, where his mom is laying into him uh, for killing his half brother, um, and Temujin's like, yeah, I killed my half brother, but like he was starving us to death, and and you know, like it's it's fascinating. Uh, it, it it the whole thing is. It, like in Temujin, the audio drama, we don't even touch the second half of his life, which if we're talking about his personal and family life, oh my goodness. Like, <laughs> like there is, there's a scene where he's basically like breaking down in the court, begging his sons to please consider working together as a semi-functional family unit. And they're just not having it. And he's like, I get it. I used to be exactly like you. I, I'm like, I, I killed my own brother. You know, like, I get it. But this cannot be what happens to you. And sure enough, what happens? His oldest son dies in mysterious circumstances oh, in ways that benefit the second son. Oh, no. And like, and like he's there and you get the sense in the secret history. He spent every waking moment sort of thinking about that stuff. And when you think about the fact that the secret history was written at all um, by somebody who spent nights um, walking around with re- religious advisors, right? Like uh, he, he was somebody who, and that was one of the things, I think that was the thing that got me thinking, I need, I need to write this because Historically, we know that Genghis Khan, um, we actually have letters that he wrote to various religious heads all over the world, um, sort of begging them uh, to come and spend a night with him uh, so he could talk with them, so he could just walk and, and just chill. And like he collected them almost, just like, um, <laughs> like the world's strangest and most unexpected game of Pokemon. Yeah, like, I was just about to say um, I'm playing the Pokemon game in my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> what a great time. The Pokemon theme is fantastic. Okay, um, sorry. Focus. Um, yes, yes, I'm a weeb, but also I must focus. Um, no, no, sorry. I'll get to. I'll get more to the weeby stuff later. That the weeb stuff will become relevant again shortly. Of, of course, it will. Um, but for now, religion and religious studies. Um, yeah, I think I just realized that um, there was something. It could be the part of me that had just finished work on Hamlet at this point, who was so fascinated by the idea of somebody who who was so interested in the ethics of killing, uh, engaging with it on a worldwide scale, the likes of which, like, world history had never seen. How, like, why? I mean, like, um, you, you would think the impulse for any person would be to shut that part of themselves off and focus. Um, because it's easier to imagine that, right? We're thinking about, like, philosophies of evil. Um, I think very often we believe that that, that evil people, and certainly we, whatever the man was like, we believe him by and large to be evil presently. He was not oblivious right? in the way that I think we often assume people of that, of that nature are. Um, There's a very Western feeling of um, colonizer, right? A uh, feeling mm-hmm. of um, one note villains, right? Yes. Like, Yes, exactly right. Othering, barbarian. Exactly. Bar- the barbarian, the barbarian king, yeah. uh, Genghis Khan. Mm. That's just like a story and it, it doesn't go any mm. deeper than that in yeah, I, anywhere. Exactly. Of course, exactly. Like who gets to call who barbarians mm-hmm. and who are conquerors bringing culture and enlightenment? Mm-hmm. Like who decides that? Um, so I think one thing I was very, very careful about at the outset was, yes, all these intricacies, all these intricacies were very, very interesting to me. Yes, I found that the portrait of the historical Genghis Khan was very surprising. Like, so surprising to me, in fact, that I thought that, that I simply must dramatize this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this is the key thing of sort of the first early realization that I made is I don't want to exercise, I don't want to engage in historical revisionism to the degree that Genghis Khan was good, actually. Because mm. um, that, that is entering very murky waters. That is... Um, and I think and the whole point of the secret history, I thought, wasn't to say Chinggis Khan was good, actually. I thought the point of the secret history is to me was Chinggis Khan was human, actually. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the thing, right? Like ripping historical figures off their pedestals 
and placing them within sort of the realm of everyday anxiety, stress, um, mistake making, and and tender affection, I think is one of the great gifts of of dramatization, uh, of getting us to consider that that history, present and past, are written not so much by by titans so much as people who in some ways are in the right place at the right time or or who make decisions that have extraordinary impact but under conditions that by and large are often immediately recognizable with fears and concerns that are immediately recognizable um like for instance like like in Temujin a huge thing is that he's a he's a new father um that he is or or even before that that he's a kid who feels like 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 it's enough to believe that you can change the world that you know like oh you know like i'm gonna i'm gonna do all this stuff i mean i i feel angst so i will translate that to action like who has not been there who does not recognize that feeling and when i was reading the secret history i got that feeling like this is a kid who wants to change the world and that beautiful moment where um part way through his history he changes his mind and he's actually quite settled in um, and there's a moment where Chinggis Khan could very easily have lived the rest of his life as a farmer. Because um, like, he was happy. Like, he, the, the ambition, the, the nature of ambition, not so much as, like, a a great man destined for great things, but so much as, like, that winding path. He's just making these, he's responding to things, making interesting choices, informed by very human, yeah. Um, and he makes mistakes. That's what I love about it. That's what I love about the story of the secret history. Uh, so we're talking about Sort of crystallizing it and realizing that we wanted to do this and coming off of Hamlet. And basically what happened was that we had this infrastructure of actors who we really trusted, people who creatively were really vibing together. Um, and uh, sort of like on the very last night of, our, of that production, um, I remember like turning to like um, our Hamlet actor, Ziad, uh, Ziad Bagarim, um, who's also our Temujin main actor, and telling him like, how would you feel about at some point in the future playing Chinggis Khan? Um, and the fact that he enabled it, he, <laughs> he giggled and he said, yeah, sure, dude, you write it. I'll play it. Um, I was like, yeah, <laughs> challenge accepted, man. <laughs> like, you don't know what you're agreeing to because four years from now, I will make you do that. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, um, this was like in 26, 2015, 2016 now, um, where I'm like, okay, I'm really, 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 really interested in this. Um, so I was reading at this point, I had finished the Jack Weatherford material um, I had read The Secret History. I had read a couple of different translations of it um, to get a feel for uh, for what is common and what is different and what are quirks of the translators to make sure that I'm at least getting the heart of it. Or as as much as you can call the heart of... I'm speaking to a linguist. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. The best you can hope for is to get a sense of what the quirks of a translator are. Pretty much. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I had Ammerbold. I had Ammerbold. Thank goodness I had Ammerbold. So anytime, like, um, like I would just ask him a question, like, um, would you say that uh, the Ong Han was a bit like a mafia boss? Um, and you say, well, yes and no, right? You say yes in the ways that he controlled this and this, no in the ways. That, I mean, so so I, I would just always ask him, like, do you think do you, do you think it was a really big deal that she waited uh, instead of just getting married? Um, uh, for this guy, she's like, that's a huge deal, dude. Like, it's a, <laughs> he would kind of. Um, have impassioned answers to every casual question I had. So after I'd finished getting a lay of the material, um, I think what became increasingly important was this idea of cracking the characters um, and really getting a sense for, like, like if the whole point is to humanize um, historical figures or to adapt material which humanizes them, then you have to know them like they're every day. You have to know them effortlessly. This all culminated in sort of, like, understanding what's admirable. Like, hey, can I come, like, go to your house sometime? <laughs> Can I come visit you for like a couple of weeks? Is that cool? Um, we kind of set up like this. Um, his family is lovely. Like him and his family, um, his two parents. I also think they might be listening to this. So hello, Amarbo's parents. Thank you for listening to this. I'm so grateful to you guys. Um, what they did was they, they set up this sort of two-week um, program. Like the first week we were in Ulaanbaatar or Yubi, which is like, um, the, like the capital, like the city of Mongolia, which is... Uh, I'm forgetting the statistic off offhand, but it is where a vast majority of um, Mongolians live um, in this tiny little place, um, and everyone else is spread out in sort of this vast, vast, vast space. Um, you have a lot of people living here, so like um, UV is at once kind of like its own very distinct thing, 
um, in Mongolia, but then also like um, it, it is a great place to meet people mm-hmm. and to get a sense of what 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 um, what do people read, what do people watch, um, what do people want to talk about. If I tell them like, have you read the Secret History? Do people read the Secret History? Like they'll have opinions. Um, uh, I got to go to the the biggest bookstore, um, and I was shocked to see that one of the best sellers um, in in sort of the the um, the shelf for bestsellers uh, was Jack Weatherford's book. Um, Genghis um, Khan and the Making of the Modern World, uh, which I had always appreciated for is sort of like bringing that that sort of Western accessibility and sensibility to but like hey that's, that's a huge seller in <laughs> Mongolia too, and I remember just going what is wow I spoke to theater directors there, um, described like hey I was thinking about dramatizing this um, like what would you advise what would you and and a couple of very very obvious things things I, I could have expected but hearing it come from people was still really nice. Like this, this is a story that to some people is treated with the same religious sanctity as Genesis in, in the Bible, right? It is, um, is, there are some people who view it as non-literal, but like a parable, like um, a source of sort of um, shamanistic wisdom. Um, if you study these stories, you, and in much the same way that I think you hear people talk about parables, talk about the, um, some people talk about the Old Testament, some people view it as literal. Some people see it as history. Some people don't care. <laughs> like, I mean, not every person in any history in any nation is obsessed with their nation's history. Um, you can't just say that all Mongolians care in the same way that you can't say that all Singaporeans study the state narrative of like the Singapore story. Some people are just like, well, I'm here. Uh, the rap music is pretty good. Um, you know, the meat's amazing. Um, Kashmir is tight. Um, Kashmir's tight. And that's cool too. Like, <laughs> like. Like, if that is your experience, yeah, like, not every, there's no such thing as a singular monolithic understanding of, of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, I was grateful to hear that and understand that um, in that sort of week of, like, ethnographic study. Um, and that was, like, the UB part of it, where I was just getting a sense of, like, okay, the story. And, like, what, what is it? Yeah, so the other week was really, really cool. Um, and the goal here was that, like, um, at this stage, I knew that I wanted Temujin to be a script. This is when you went to the steps, right? That's right. Exactly right. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, I'd, I'd given a shot of writing Temujin. I'd written maybe about over three or four different versions. I'd written 70, 80 pages. None of them worked. All 70 or 80 were scrapped. Um, and the Ooh. reason for that, no, it's fine. It's totally fine. <laughs> I love, I love free writing. Um, I love the idea of inching closer towards something worth sticking to. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think the thing that was missing, I realized after a while, that my characters were operating in a vacuum, where if you look at, if you look at like, the first thing that you learn about when you study any kind of Mongolian culture, or when you look at the storytelling is, the steps, you know, the steps is a character. It's, at once it is antagonist, it is protagonist, it is the thing that is your travel buddy, it is the thing that um, impedes and damn near starves you. It, it is, like, I mean, we're talking about a culture that, that you can totally understand why the moment you like step foot and like you're there and you're just sort of like faced with literally a sea of land, right? Like a flat, flat, flat sea of land. So like one of the very few places in the world where um, all straight 30 km in front of you and then to all of your signs, you can ever get like flat land and see like it, it is a cosmic feeling um, of, of emptiness and surrender um, that... I am so lucky and so glad that I got to experience. And it made me feel so stupid for having tried to imagine what it would like, what it would be like to sit in that space and have a conversation. How did you translate the steps mm. into audio? Like what about the steps? How did you take that and, and make it so alive in audio? What did you go through? So it was tricky, right? Um, I think so anybody who deals in audio, and I'm sure you know this too, is that um, literalism or, or, or realism is not always the desired effect. Um, you, don't, you can't just go for what does that place sound like in real life and just plop it into your um, audio without the risk of it seeming cluttered or what, what you end up having to do, or at least, at least I think so. I, I can't speak for all audio drama theorists, but um, <laughs> I think what you end up going for is the, the feel, right? The does listening to this a contain the core elements that were distinct to me in sort of appreciating the sound when I was there 
Like, does it have that particular wind, that particular sort of feeling of wind presence of every little sound striking you as a, like, if, a, if an insect goes off to my side, I'm like, it was silent enough for me for, for that to register to me as a big deal. The wind, the little stuff around me, um, occasionally fire, like um, every now and then where that's needed um, to sustain <laughs> to sustain us because the nights are cold. <laughs> um, like yeah. I remembered all those things as having a visceral sort of combined impact on me. Um, so first I took the core elements. I'm like, this is what I know has to be there. And then the second thing was, was are we creating... Um, yeah, the feeling, I would say, is the main thing. Um, at least, I think, having gone to the steps, I was able to speak to some degree of, yes, that feels about right, or no, that doesn't feel right at all, um, in the process of mixing, in the process of determining. I just really went minimal. I went really, really minimal on Temujin, because I was so afraid of um, this idea of a cluttered, chaotic, Frankenstein that is technically correct. My goal was to create like a very, very minimal soundscape with the essential elements of the steps as I encountered it um, that got it the feeling of... It's also very, it's also very story-driven. Um, the best piece mm-hmm. of advice I ever got when it came to designing audio was um, to first, above all else, ask yourself, how does this serve the story? So um, what is happening in that scene? What is the dramatic action? Um, if your audio is technically correct steps-wise, um, but uh, makes it very difficult to appreciate this heartfelt conversation because there's wind happening in the background, um, is that good audio? Probably not necessarily. Um, so it's this balancing act, I think, of of, um, of making sure the core elements are there, but not letting them overpower the dramatic action. And where possible, making sure they coalesce. That is the goal. Um, like, okay, for example... Um, I just thought of one. Uh, during the forest scene in Act 2, we had so much fun with that. Because um, I think there the feeling was supposed to be mystery, suspense, the idea that um, you don't know what could happen. Like, unlimited possibilities. A, because these are young, young, young people. And B, because like this is the forest. This is the place where you can't see what's ahead. Um, and that's a break from the norm. Uh, we, we had that moment where the boar rushes through. We had the moment where like all the trees kind of spring up around you and you're just kind of like, oh my goodness, there's stuff everywhere. Um, that feeling of, oh my goodness, there's stuff everywhere. There's stuff moving. I don't know where everything is coming from. And like with the rustling of the footsteps, like all of that contributes to the specific like maison scene of unpredictability and spontaneous action. Um, and I think that was the element where once you go to the steps, um, that's the thing that you need to take away rather than getting lost in the minutiae of, the specific insect that I heard, um, which if I could, and on the one hand, if I could isolate the specific insect that I heard and bring that over, that would have been really nice. I didn't have any audio equipment with me, but you get, you get what I'm getting at, right? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's wonderful. I, yeah. one of the things that I loved about this production of Temujin mm-hmm. was, um, the emphasis on, the adaptation that you went through mm. to make sure that it stays mm. heavily relationship driven. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, and in other interviews, you've commented on, on it being an intimate epic, yes. right. Yes. As opposed to something action packed. Yes. And, and you mentioned it earlier. So what elements about mm. that make this epic a mm. perfect, story to adapt to audio Mm. thank you oh my goodness so first off i mean i guess i know this is embedded in your question but i have to say it anyway audio is the perfect medium for intimate storytelling isn't it like um i always just assumed it was theater but um at the same time i'm also somebody who grew up on like peter and the wolf right like um i had that oh my god peter and the wolf you too (laughs) yeah me too yes Yes. okay amazing (laughs) right like i think the foundational work in my life, my, my growth as a composer, my growth as a storyteller, oh man, it's listening to like that tape of Peter and the Wolf on mm-hmm. repeat as a five-year-old. Basically, I remember writing like, what, what is the story about? Um, Temujin and Jemma. It's about their friendship. It's about their relationship. Every single thing has to come back to that. And the reason that was such a game changer was I kept on, you know how I told you I had every notable thing that ever happened to Temujin from start to finish? 
Mm-hmm. Um, I realized that about 75% of them could be struck off um, simply by virtue of they didn't really say anything about these two or they didn't really add to that drama um, so much as they contextualized it. Um, and when I sort of nailed it down to like bare beats, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is a very simple story that is evocative of a much bigger whole. But like, it was amazing just kind of like seeing how um, that happened. And then uh, then there was a version of the story where um, an older Temujin is, I hated myself for writing this, but I needed to get it out of my system, uh, visited by a ghost of Jamuk, who you don't realize is a ghost at first. Um, but he's like, oh, you know, what's up? Like, old buddy, like, what's wrong? He's like, oh, we had a really no. messed up childhood, didn't we? <laughs> um, and then, and you know, every writer has to get a bad kind of like, it was a ghost the whole time plot out of their system. And thankfully, mine never <laughs> left my laptop. But um, I think there was a point where I realized I was having so much fun writing somebody who, contemporary to, te- to Chinggis Khan, was highly critical of him while, while loving him. I'm like, and, and somebody who felt, someone who was critical of the narrative in the same way that I was trying to remind myself that I can still be critical of the narrative and the sort of the hero worship um, as a counterbalance to the demonization. I'm like, oh my God, Jamuk. <laughs> Jamuk. Jamuk is essentially trying to do in some ways, or trying to grapple with in some ways, exactly what I'm trying to grapple with, which is um, a, a, this is lovable person or this lo- stories of this lovable person who is now Chinggis Khan, and, you know, how does that match up? So, like, the structure of Temujin in its current form is these idyllic, sort of, romantic stories of Temujin um, as, as seen through the eyes of Jamuk as this loving friend and ambitious young person, contrasted with the present day, where all Jamuk knows of, of, of Temujin is this guy waiting to see if he's going to kill him. Um... And that definitely aligns a lot more with the Temujin, the Chinggis Khan that we know. And I think what what the story ends up being about on a sort of intrigue level is is Jama couldn't possibly be right, right? Like this, this story, this picture he's painting of Temujin, as much as we buy into it, is that what the guy was like? Um, we don't know. Does Jamuk know? Jamuk doesn't really know. Um, and then from then, it, it all sort of fell into place, right? Like the structure became so clear. Like, Act 1 had to be about, like, Jamuk, um, giving you a sense of who Jamuk is, uh, this person with wounded pride, um, who feels like he has a lot to prove. And it, it became like a, like, a study in, yeah, it's just a, a character study, establishing a man who somehow both has nothing to lose, but has all the pride in the world, right? Like, um, like Milton's kind of, like, Lucifer, except, like, um, uh, sort of fallen the other way up, right? Jamuk's on a mountain, um, feeling like um, the mind is own, the mind is its own place, and itself can make a hell, a hell of heaven, a heaven of hell. Um, like that's very Jamuk. Um, and that you don't need, you don't need to see him on a mountaintop and go like, oh, that's a man on a mountaintop. Mm, he must have a story. <laughs> um, you just need to hear the way he treats people, and you're like, dang, this guy's got a, to say a chip on his shoulder would be an understatement, like. So Act 1 became about, like, can we convey the attitude? Act 2 became about, can we convey the, the friendship? Like, an explosive start to a friendship. Act 3 became, like, um, can we show doubt? Like, um, doubt. Um, like, can we convey that? Act 4, um, basically a breakup act, right? Like, um, like um, the tragic end to a romance story. Um, where everything kind of seems to build and climax and, oh, no, it's all so heartbreaking. But then Act 5 comes in, and you thought Act 4 was a climax. But Act 5 reminds you that everything you just heard was in itself its own story. Act 5 becomes about a study in as much as I could handle the writing of it. Um, emotional realism with what is perceived to be world, world-endingly devastating stakes for two people at a formative cusp in human history with the question being, do you still like me? <laughs> you know, like, that's all it is. Do you still like me? <laughs> um, Sorry. No, and like... No, that's a very succinct way of putting it. Yeah. Um, and all of those things. It's also very funny. All of, that's the thing. Is, um, it, all five are driven by very, very simple 
emotional drama. And and when you described it that way, you're like, yeah, of course. Of course, spoken words, attitudes can convey all the heights of those themes or those like emotional themes. Um, and it became very obvious that like, um, and all, all these beats, again, like when I was plotting out the beats for this, and, and I'm a huge, I think one thing that's really important for me is dramatic structure. I'm a nerd for dramatic structure. I love it. Um, I started off hating three-act structure. I was a rebellious, like, um, how about no-act structure? How about we just go where the story <laughs> wants to, damn it. Um, and, and then what, what I realized after, like, failing miserably to write anything compelling for, like, two years, I'm like, oh, wait, actually, actually, there's something so magical about the art of sustaining attention, right? And so much of audio is the art of sustaining attention. So much of structure is offering olive branches to the audience and going like i know that you have no reason to care so let me give you this let me give you this do you care maybe you do let me tweak this a little bit you still care huh well i'm gonna take that care and i'm gonna do something real interesting with it watch this oh you like that you didn't like that that hurt a little bit didn't it now watch this <laughs> you know and like that very careful manipulation of like um audience investment uh is something that i think is is not we, we can think of structure as something which um, limits the, the actor, but I think to me, the writer, I mean, but to me, I see it as something which is friendly to audience. It, it helps me visualize before, long after I've lost um, any sense of how this feels, it helps me visualize what an audience would be feeling. Like, I'm like, okay, this is probably about the part, if I got my structure right, where the audience is going to be craving a little bit of this. So like um, in act four, I'd be like, let me try to make it as... as as upbeat as I can, because the audience is expecting tragedy here. So let me try to keep it light. Let me keep it light for as long as I can until it becomes so unbearable to the audience who is going, just give me the breakup already. Just give me the sad thing because this is all so nice. Um, <laughs> you know, like structure lets you manipulate that in a very intentional way. And the joy creatively of Temujin for me was, again, the building blocks were all there from the secret history. I wanted this to be one of the most faithful adaptations of their friendship. I refused to de deviate from any part of that. And I think I'm very proud of this as a faithful adaptation. Um, but at the same time, right? Like, I mean, we, we were able to, this is, I think what I admired about Shakespeare, like massage, go like, this has to be the part, like um, bit was jumping at the beginning where we are told outright, this man, things are not going to end well for this man. Like, the first 20 to 30 seconds, well-established, then we go, um, well, what's this man? Why is bad stuff going to happen to him? What's, what's happening? What's, oh, I don't like him. I don't like this guy. I mean, I don't mind if bad things happen to this guy. Um, and then, boom, you know, like, Shakespeare was really good at that, I think. His act ones, woof. Um, you know, you look at, you look at um, the Scottish play, you look at, like, um, um, like Hamlet. Well, act one, scene one of Hamlet wasn't very good, but act one, scene two, I think, where, like, um, there's all this family intrigue, there's all that stuff, there's all like, um, I know your father died under mysterious circumstances, young man, and that I just happened to be here to marry this woman I've always loved, but why are you so upset? Hmm? Don't want to stay upset now, do you? Hmm? Like, ah, oh, so, it's so immediately investable. Um, and that was the feeling, I think, with Temujin that, like, um, I felt really excited structurally that we were able to, like, get it to that point. And then when it came to audio, I'm like, let's Let's take character, let's take attitude, let's take motivation, let's take want, um, and really hone in on that. So the structure for this, for Temujin, was I really wanted it to be rehearsed like a stage play. Um, I really wanted it to be really, really like um, something that the actors had the chance to like inhabit. So we actually had like a, about a four-month rehearsal process um, where we were meeting about two to three times weekly. Um, and... You take any of the actors who voice acted for this, and they could mount a very compelling live-action production of Temujin simply by way of tapping on all of their mannerisms during rehearsals and what they knew how to do. And, like, Jamuk had a whole physical vocabulary built up, and so did Temujin. Like, a lot of the people who voice acted for this are very strong physical actors. But what we ended up doing was... Um, I, took a look at, I took a look at, like, all their acting styles, and I said, like, you are all people who understand motivation very, very well. Every single one of these actors um, is really good at studying a line and going, yeah, I think I kind of get what this guy wants. I get what this guy wants. And I get why this other person's being a bit of like a prick and why they feel like they need to like play it up a bit. Um, 
And the whole thing was just A, translating that to audio, I think. So what we did every single rehearsal from basically the first week on was everybody recorded. Everyone kept a phone recorder sort of with them at all times um, to record their own things, uh, to record their own voices, the final run of every night, would listen to it and then share notes on it the next rehearsal. I'm like, oh, I thought I sounded a bit like this. I thought I was acting a certain way, but I sounded totally like this. And to have four months of that, four months of just really great focused character work going like, like, oh, I thought I wanted this in a scene, but I wanted this instead. I think when, when you look at why Temujin as an audio drama works right now, I think what you're hearing a lot of are each individual actor second guessing and layering their performances significantly over four months until, like, yes, audio is intimate, has a capacity for intimacy, rather, but it's the work of the actors to find and mine, like, meaningful subtext that, that really brings the capacity of this medium to its fullest sort of realized potential, right? So, like, um, Temujin as an audio thing works because the actors, like, poured their heart into it, I think. And we really I'm really that. glad that you you wanted to share that because that is a fascinating mm. rehearsal process that yeah. I I don't think that I've heard any director or writer talk about a rehearsal process that went mm. quite like that. Mm. We had to figure out our own uh, payment scheme for it um, because I mean yeah. a lot of people charge by lines, right? And um, right. I think my sense was that if we if we rehearse these people well enough, most of the stuff is going to be within one or two takes. Um, so then the thing there became, um, I compensated by hour, actually. Um, so the great thing about changing the audio drama is that, um, yes, the script was something I developed for school, but we essentially ran it like a small company outside of school because it really got started after I graduated. Um, uh, every single person, every single person on this like 30 or so person team was compensated. Um, almost, Amazing. I think almost, if not always, to industry standard rates, as far as I could find them in Singapore. Um, and that that's is, a really yeah. amazing achievement. Yeah, thank you. I think I would honestly say that that is one of the things I'm proudest of regarding this production. Um, everybody got paid on time immediately um, after the production wrapped. Um, we got all of our funding sorted. Um, mm-hmm. Even the visual artists, like um, I, I know it was, it was really really great. I think from a so I, I guess I didn't say this actually initially. Uh, for Temujin, I was um, writer, director, and composer, and also co-producer. So um, I, I, had a, I had a very significant role in determining the rates and liaising with people that we would hire and asking how much they are, we're able to compensate them. And there were many cases, actually, where we were able to pay people more than they'd asked for, um, simply by way of, like, how many hours did you guys put in? If you asked for 50, but then I saw that you were, like, pulling an all-nighter during the shoot, um, to make sure that the second day we'd get all the takes we need. Of course, like you're going to get a pay bump. Um, and I felt very lucky that we were able to run the production that way. I think it was really important that we valued ours rather than valuing like wh- how many lines takes you happen to need in the recording room. That that style to me, maybe this is just coming from a theater background, right? Like it didn't make so much sense because I much rather, <laughs> yeah. Um, if they're going to be coming in for rehearsals, and I want them to be coming in for rehearsals, their time has to feel valued that way. So <laughs> let's <laughs> let's take a moment to talk about um, the portrayal. We talked about this already a little bit, but yes. it's the the portrayal um, of Mongolian history and and yes. peoples in media. Yes, right. So one of the things that you did in Temujin was you wrote in a very specific. <sighs> style and linguistic structure yes instead of having your actors talk in quote unquote mongolian accented english yes uh, whatever that whatever that means yes (laughs) we're looking at you hollywood directly gosh yes um so i love this decision that you made um Mm. so please tell me more about it and Mm. and about your scripting and directing Mm. um Mm. like uh i guess Mm. process but like not Mm. process but your your what you did in scripting and what you did in directing Beautiful. to make it stand out the way that it does. Beautiful. Hey, we get to talk about linguistics now. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> okay, beautiful. As if I wouldn't ask this question. <laughs> I love that you asked this question. And if it's okay, I'd love to get some of your insight too, because now here I am talking to an expert um, yeah, with, really. within your field. Because I, um, I can tell you the decisions I made and the factors I took into consideration 
But if there's one thing that this process taught me, it is that half of any sort of work of cultural empathy or understanding means willing, being willing to shut up and listen when somebody who knows their stuff is talking. So I'll tell you what was on my mind, but I'm curious to hear what you think. Um, okay, cool. So uh, it was a confused and rocky process. I think um, even after, so I talked to you about how we found the frame, right? Even after we'd found the frame, um, we had many, many false starts, many false starts to it. Um, so like one thing that, and this is something that the translators of uh, the secret history often struggle with as well, because uh, when you look at quite a few of them, like um, there's this, there's an inclination towards elevated prose, um, but kind of this iambic sort of formal, uh, thou the kind of um, uh, regal, sort of regal English. To, I don't know any better way to put it. I know there's probably a technical term for it. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like, and again, that, that ghost of Shakespeare sort of rearing his head of, over anything deemed uh, worthy of epicness. Um, and I think um, I could feel that looking at the translators. And you know what? I was kind of swept up, uh, swept up a little bit by that too. I'm like, these are, these are grand, this is grand history. Like, um, let's, let's go, you know, like, and then I looked at what Lynn, our boy Lynn, I say Lynn because I know him so casually, um, <laughs> all the way from Sydney. Um, but when, when you look at what he's doing with Hamilton, um, I, I thought, what I thought I saw was somebody able to simultaneously <sighs> celebrate character, celebrate character driven writing. Um, while at the same time making it feel like your ears are just always in for a treat. And I'm like, man, wouldn't that be nice? Um, so I, I wrote an entire act and a half of Temujin entirely in iambic pentameter. Um, you did what? Yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> the current script, more or less as it is right now, there are still lines of it that are accidentally in iambic pentameter that I did not change. So like, I... if... if I, I mean, I figured that was on purpose, but <laughs> I actually I didn't realize it was a leftover. Yeah, yeah. I actually was like more or less trying to get rid of it. Um, but uh, spoilers. Um, but uh, yeah. So like, I'm like, I have a pentameter. I'm like, and I remember like, like listening back to it, reading it. I'm like, no, this does not work. This does not feel good. And um, it took me a while. It's surprisingly a while, honestly. You know, when you're recounting the history of a production, um. And you're describing the the folly of your ways as sort of I know I know hindsight is twenty twenty but like man it, it really took me a while to figure this one out but it sounds so obvious now that um, instead of if the entire dramatic goal of this was to thrust historical figures off the pedestal and make them relatable why was I giving them the voice of a you know why was I, why was I imitating the voice of a dead British man. You know, like, why, why was I, mm -hmm. I, 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 I just... The colonization of language in yeah. literature. Yeah. yeah. Yep. But I mean, I guess when, when we're raised to believe that a certain way of writing or a certain dramatist um, is great, we, we take things unquestioningly. And I think in some ways, I guess, like working on Temujin at that part of my life as a, as a script writer was kind of my reckoning with colonization um, mm -hmm. because it, it yep. taught me what I loved about um, like colonizer work. Like, um, I loved Shakespeare as a historical dramatist. Turns out I didn't like him so much as a, um, as a grand determiner of, uh, linguistic flourishes and, and capabilities, right? I mean, not so much. I, I don't like his writing. I, I like the character work. So I'm like, okay, okay, so, okay. so three steps back. Let me get all the script off of the page. Uh, what I want to do, I want to make this feel like you can know these people. I want to make it feel like, I, and I, I want to bring it down to earth, right? That's what I kept on saying. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to write in my own voice. <laughs> I'm just going to like, unashamedly go like, okay, this is the mood. This is what this guy is feeling. I'm going to write this. Every single time I finished tonight, we did a, we did a table read of it. So I could hear how it sounded. Um, and I think that act one table read where I'm like, these sound like people. This sounds real. This sounds like something that I can viscerally reach out and grab and go like, yeah, this is, this, these are words that I understand. I, then it wasn't so much that it's an, it's an English I understand because on the one hand, I'm a Singaporean, uh, but you, you recognize, you might recognize that, um, I'm not fluent in this conversation in Singlish. 
Um, mm-hmm. uh, so one thing I struggle with a lot as a Singaporean writer is, does my writing feel authentically Singaporean or am I too American for my own country? Having never once even lived in America, right? Like, I don't know. So, um, so I was very aware of how my own voice right now is just kind of what my voice is. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the thing that I wanted to prioritize was, do these char- are these characters being written naturally? Are they being written in a way that feels real? And this is, this is what I know real feels like. Like this, I guess what it boils down to yeah. is I wanted these characters to feel tangible and accessible to an English-speaking listener listening to it. Um, anything beyond that. So the accent work. For a lot of the actors, um, and this is where I answer your directing question, uh, for a lot of the actors, oh my gosh, it's so funny. Um, they came in with the, the strangest accents. They're like, um, I am Temujin. I'm like, what are you doing, dude? You don't talk like that. He's like, yeah, but this is James Gunn, right? I'm like, no. Like, I mean, yeah, but like, like talk how you normally talk. Like, and I mean, he's like, oh. Yes, I'm, but no. Yeah, yes, but no. I'm like, like, <laughs> how would, like, and then we just talk about motivation. We're like, okay, so what, what kind of position is Temujin in? Okay, so he's been starving. He is tired. He is pissed off. He, he uh, but, and he is... <laughs> Got the simmering quality of God. I wish things were better, but I need to go get this meat now because my life is hanging by a thread as it is. And we're like, "What does that sound like to you?" And he's like, "Well, I mean, I would play it like this." I'm like, "That's it. You got it. <laughs> you know, like that's it." Um, and and bless Temujin. I've mentioned Ziad before, um, but but Ziad as Temujin, um, what he decided to do was really lean into character work. So on the one hand, he used his voice, but on the other hand, like. That's doing a disservice to the amount of detail he puts into the effects of age and sort of experiences on weathering Temujin. So he really, like every single act, he had like a written plan for how he was going to modulate it and, and allow himself to be weathered by it and, and how that will manifest in the quality of his voice. And he tried all this different stuff out and, and listened to it. So if you listen to like even Act 2 and Act 3 Temujin, even Act 3 and Act 4 Temujin, they're not the same. They are fundamentally different and act five by the time he reveals what his genius han voice is you're like oh man like what happened that made you sound like that i think that is a great button to end on mm. so thank you so so much for this wonderful conversation thank you honestly i really appreciate you coming on the show temujin is a full five acts you can learn more about them at their facebook page temujin.audiodrama or talk to them on twitter at temujin drama Stay tuned for next week when we turn our senses to the present and the city of Downey in Moonface. We ran Radio Drama Revival on a bit of a shoestring budget. If you'd like to help keep us afloat and featuring new, diverse, unique fiction podcasts and their creators, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. Other than Patreon, you can also support Radio Drama Revival by buying merch at our shop at radiodramarevival.com slash shop. I can confirm. The mug is great for holding tea when you need to sit with friends and tell your stories. And now we bring you our moment of will. Really, we promise it's will. Or is it? Yes. Hi, it's me. It's Will. For this moment of will, I wanted to talk about a video I watched recently that talks about the appropriation of Mongolian fashion and iconography in things like the Star Wars films. Now, I had no idea that the Star Wars prequels took so much of their imagery from Mongolian culture. And that's that's kind of the point, right? That's kind of why it's especially awful. Um, the video is by Sherliza Moe, who is so engaging. Uh, she does a lot of YouTube videos. She is kind of part of the commentary genre. The video is called Asian Cultural Appropriation, Star Wars, and Avatar The Last Airbender Part 1. Now, I know that Avatar The Last Airbender is really important to a lot of us, and the same goes for Star Wars. Um, But I would really invite you to watch this video with an open mind and an open heart. It goes places that you might not expect, and at least for me, it was incredibly informative and has inspired a lot of my own research, as well as listening to Temujin has. So I hope you enjoy. As always, the link will be in the description of this episode. That means it's time for the credits. 
This episode was recorded in the unceded territory of the Kalapuya people, the Klatskani Indian tribe, the Kaulitz Indian tribe, and the Atfalali tribe. Colonizers named this place Beaverton, Oregon. If you are seeking ways in which to donate to Native communities, the Aniwa Gathering of Elders and the Boa Foundation are raising community relief funds for six reservations, the Oglala Lakota, Hopi, Lenape Ramapo, Apache, Navajo, and Toono Odam communities. You can donate at www.gofundme.com f support indigenous communities in USA. The link will be in our episode description. Our theme music is Reunion of the Space Ducks by the band Kylo Kaz. You can find their music on Free Music Archive. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli Hamada McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Ann Baird. Our submissions editor is Rashika Rao. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhalgh and David Rangstrom. Our mascot is Ticker Tape, the goat. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez-Collins, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers, welcome. <laughs>